Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Robert Blake Jr., one of the most accomplished and widely respected U.S. diplomats of the past century. Ambassador Blake served in the State Department with distinction for over three decades, including ambassadorships in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. Ambassador Blake also served as Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, Deputy Executive Secretary, and as Deputy Chief of Mission in New Delhi, India, where he was recognized as DCM of the Year. Ambassador Blake, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. So it's great to see you again. I have to tell you, I had a great time preparing for this interview in part because I got to dig into your family history with yes. the Foreign Service. <laughs> and I got to review all sorts of details about your dad, your grandfather, your uncle, your cousin, yeah. and the rest of your family and your connection to the service. Will you tell us a little bit about your family and your history with the Foreign Service? Sure. I'm probably that rare Foreign Service officer that's actually a third-generation FSO. As you say, my grandfather on my mother's side was a foreign service officer, a career foreign service officer, and rose to become minister. At that time, they didn't have ambassadors. They called them ministers. And he was minister in several South American posts. And my father, in turn, served in the foreign service for 35 years, had a wide range of posts, loved every single minute of it, I think imparted to me the sense of service and just the pleasure of living overseas and serving your country. My uncle, my mother's brother, was also uh, twice ambassador in Laos and in Thailand and, again, a career foreign service officer. And my cousin, Sheldon Whitehouse, is his son, now a senator from Rhode Island, but a very, very strong supporter of the foreign service. So we have a lot of foreign service in our DNA, and we're very proud of it. <laughs> so that's incredible. I don't think I know any other officers with that pedigree. Was your mother a bridesmaid in Kennedy's wedding? For Jackie Onassis, yes, she was. How did that happen? Well, they grew up together in Newport, Rhode Island, so they were longtime friends and stayed friends for their whole lives. Interesting. So in 1957, your father got a job as a political officer in Tunisia. Yes. And you were just a baby. You were a few months old. Right. So you spent the first few years of your life in Tunis. And then by the time you were six, your family moved to Leopoldville. And you stayed there until you were about nine? Yes. Leopoldville, now called Kinshasa, Kinshasa by the way. Kinshasa, exactly. <laughs> then you went to Paris between the ages of 10 and 12. Yep. And then you were in Mali between the ages of 12 and 15. I was off in boarding school by that point because oh. there were no schools in Mali. I had understood that your mom had homeschooled you for a little bit and then you went to boarding school? Or you no, went she right homeschooled away. both my brother and my sister who were younger than me. Understood. So you were boarding school starting at age 12, 12 early? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Where was that? At Milton Academy up in Boston, okay. uh, outside of Boston. Wonderful place. And I remember my mother was in tears leaving me because it was really the first time I'd ever been away from home for any length of time. And she and my dad then flew off to Mali, which in the early 70s, of course, we barely had phone connections to yeah. Mali. Yeah. And we certainly didn't have internet or any of that kind of stuff. So I would speak to them every two months or so by phone over a very crackly line and went home for summer vacation and for Christmas. But other than that, I was sort of on my own. But it was a wonderful experience. What was that like going from Kinshasa with your family 
to Milton at such a young age by yourself? Actually, it was empowering. You know, it was some of the early experiences of my life traveling alone. I remember my very first trip out there, my mom said, oh, you know, on your way to Mali, would you mind just picking up a dog? We've just gotten a dog. And I said, sure. And she said, it's easy. You just go to LaGuardia Airport to the freight area and the dog will be there. Well, the dog was late. I was about to get on this Pan Am flight that went from New York all the way to Dakar. And then from there, I took another flight. And I had to make that flight. And so it turned out it wasn't at the freight in LaGuardia. It was at freight in JFK somewhere. (laughs) So I madly found the right place. And I had about an hour to spare. And I just put myself at the mercy of the baggage handlers. And I said, I am not going to make this flight unless you help me. Can you just take me directly to the gate? Hmm. and put that dog on this plane, and I put me on that plane. And they said, that's a little bit uh, unusual, but we'll do it. They took pity on me as a 12-year-old, and they did. So I never actually went through customs or immigration or anything like that. They just put me on the plane, and it was all great. You were born to do this, high-stakes diplomacy. Exactly. (laughs) So it was an early uh, lesson in find a way out of problems. (laughs) That move, though, from Paris – was, as I understand it, something of a surprise. Yeah. Your family was only given something like six days to find a new assignment after Dick Watson arrived with the Nixon administration. Yeah. That must have been stressful. I was blissfully unaware of all the things that my father was going through. But for a while there, he was going to be going to Vietnam. Right. And then it changed and he got assigned to Mali, which was great. It was for him a dream come true to become an ambassador. And he was going back to Africa, a place that he'd served in before. And he loved it. It was less charming for my mom because at that point, Mali was one of the poorest countries in the world. But anyway, it turned out to be a really interesting assignment and we all loved it. So there are some interesting parallels between your career and your dad's career. Early on in your own career, did you ever feel like there was an echo of your father's career in what you were doing or did you feel pressure to be a certain kind of an officer because your dad had been an ambassador? No, not at all. My dad had a completely laid back approach about my career and I remember going to see him before I went off for my first tour in Lagos, Nigeria and I said to him, well, dad, I'm going to be a third secretary. I'm off on my first job and have you got any advice for me? And he kind of thought for a second and he said, son, I've got two pieces of advice for you. One, always make your boss look good. So don't take credit for stuff. Make your boss look good. That was very good advice that served me for 31 years. And then the other one was more funny was don't let them cheat you out of your leave. (laughs) (laughs) And that was also good advice because there's a lot of times when you've been assigned to a post and the post you're going to says, oh, it's important you get here right away. And sorry, you can't take any leave because we need you. And then you get there and they say, what are you doing here so soon? And in fact, you say, oh, man, I should have taken those three weeks of home leave like I was supposed to. And so both of those are very good pieces of advice. But those are the only things he ever told me. He never tried to say, oh, you're doing the wrong thing. And he was just 100 percent supportive and just a great mentor. To all of our entry-level officers out there listening, you just received two of the best pieces of advice that you're ever going to come by. So hang, <laughs> hang, on to, hang on to those pieces of advice. So let's move on quickly to your own career. Sure. Ambassador Grossman, Mark Grossman, called you one of the best foreign service officers and best leaders with whom he'd ever worked. And for the benefit of our listeners, Ambassador Grossman was 
Director General of the Foreign Service, the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, and the Undersecretary for Political Affairs. So high praise coming from somebody in a pretty well-informed place. And himself, one of the, really one of the legends of the Foreign Service, one of Absolutely. the most admired and really respected, I dare I say loved, because he really took care of his people and just a wonderful, wonderful leader in his own right. Just to be in the same sentence as Mark Grossman is an honor. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your leadership style and also give us a few examples, including Ambassador Grossman, of folks for whom you worked that really stood out as leaders in your career. Yeah. Overseas, I was very lucky in my second tour to serve in Cairo, which was at that time one of the largest embassies in the world. And I did my one year of consular work there, which was really interesting and fun. For the second year, I was the assistant to the ambassador, what they called the staff aide to the ambassador. And I was extraordinarily fortunate to have as my ambassador one of the real lions of the Foreign Service, Frank Wisner, who had been already ambassador in several places. He'd been ambassador in the Philippines. He'd been ambassador in Zambia. He went on to be ambassador in India. He then became undersecretary of state and undersecretary over at the Pentagon. So he had just an incredible career, one of the most admired people still. And Frank Wisner, there was a junior officer really watching him every day and supporting him every day. And I think the things that I learned from him, first of all, the value of proactive diplomacy. Every single day he was out there. He never waited for instructions from Washington. He figured out what needed to be done. And then he was out there every day meeting with a huge range of people in the government. He made it his business to establish very good, warm personal relationships with the key people in the foreign ministry in the presidency and in the parliament, wherever the real movers and shakers were. So that was one thing. Secondly, he also was very, very active back in Washington. So he had a very good sense of what people in Washington knew. He was constantly on the phone with senior officials in the Pentagon and in basically using his position to really drive the policy process in Washington so that they were going in a smart direction. And they all had a tremendous respect for him. So he was able to really have a tremendous influence. And I learned a lot about that as well, how an ambassador really can drive the policy process. The other thing I think just on a more management side of things is that he had just a lovely way with people. He would come in in the morning and often I was there trailing him and he'd be barking out orders and, you know, here's what we're (laughs) going to do today and this kind of stuff. But he always took the time as he was walking in the door to say hello to every single person in that embassy, whether it was the gardener or the guy who was serving tea or whether it was a junior officer or the head of the political section. And he treated them all with great respect and with dignity and in a very friendly manner. And they were all just so flattered that the ambassador even knew their names. And the Egyptians, he would talk to them in sort of fluent Egyptian Arabic, and they were just so charmed by him. So everybody loved working for Frank Wisner, Mm -hmm. both because he was just a lovely person, but also because he just was sort of a genius at the policy side of it and kind of embodied himself the qualities that we all like to see in ambassador. So when I became an ambassador, I really went back to a lot of what I learned from Frank Wisner on my second tour. So All of you out there who are in your second and early tours, pay attention because there's a lot to be learned from these senior officers. And just 
really paying attention to what they're doing and how they're doing it will serve you well for the rest of your lives. And I would say on the other side, Mark Grossman. Mark called me up. I'd been serving in Tunisia. And he and I had worked together previously when I'd been up as a staffer working for the Undersecretary for Political Affairs at the time. And he'd been in the Political Affairs Bureau. So we worked a lot on all kinds of stuff. Hmm. Anyway, Mark became Assistant Secretary for European Affairs. And he called me up and he said, oh, you know, Bob, I've got this job coming up as senior Turkey desk officer in the department. I said, oh, Mark, that's really nice. But, you know, I've never been to Turkey. I don't know anything about Turkey. And he said, don't worry. You're a good officer. You'll figure it out. What I need is people who can get stuff done. And I said, okay. Because it was more just the opportunity to work with him. I knew that there would be a big learning curve to begin with, but you face that in almost every job that you start. And what I really loved about Mark was he was Mr. Turkey. He had been ambassador in Turkey. He really took a proprietary interest in what was going on there. But he trusted me and he kind of let me run with it. And he rarely gave me instructions about stuff. Mm. I think what he appreciated about me was that I was very proactive. Mm-hmm. When something big happened in Turkey, I didn't wait for him to call me and say, could you do an info memo to the secretary about whatever right. happened? Right. I would just do it because I knew that this was a big deal. And so often before he even heard about it, he had a draft info memo on his desk to the secretary saying, what happened? What are we saying about it? What are we doing about it? And in one page – Sending the secretary the message, we got this and we've got it under control and we're working on it. And I think he really appreciated that about me, but also that's something that I learned from him that, again, the value of proactive diplomacy and the best officers in the State Department, and I said this to my own desk officers later, was don't wait for instructions because often that's going to be too late and I'm going to be often too busy to give you instructions. So, you know, use your judgment, do what you think is right, and 99% of the time, that's going to be great. And so just talk to your office director, make sure he or she is on board with what you're doing and go forth and do great things. And I think people love that. They love being empowered. They love that your boss is going to support you and have your back and you'll be able to take the initiative and do important things for your country. Even when I was assistant secretary, I really made it a priority to get to know every single person in my bureau. So every new person that came in, I told my staff, I want to have five to ten minutes with them, hear about their background, tell them a little bit about what I see as important in their area of responsibility, but just to kind of have a little bit of a personal relationship. And then I really made it my business, even when I was assistant secretary and had a lot of stuff going on, if there was a particularly good memo that somebody had done or there was a great cable from somebody in the field, I would just send a little tiny one-line message just saying – Dear Jeremy, this was really a fabulous memo. Thank you so much for doing this. And just that by itself made a huge difference for people. It does. And people really appreciate that. Oftentimes, people take time to tell people when they've done something wrong, but they don't necessarily take the time (laughs) to say, good job. And that goes for also nominating people for awards and things like that because, again, people are extraordinarily busy and it does take time to do that kind of stuff. But it just makes such a difference for people and it'll – engender sort of loyalty and affection that will carry you forward and just it'll have a multiplier effect for your bureau. Yep. Every career ambassador <clears throat> that we've interviewed, the very best ones have all said the exact same thing. Yeah. A quick question though. Your second tour you mentioned was in Cairo yeah. as Frank Wisner's assistant. You also worked as an economic officer in Algiers. Yeah. You were a Paul officer in Tunis. You had that stint on the Turkey desk. 
Then you were a deputy executive secretary. You were an executive assistant to the undersecretary for political affairs. Everybody out there listening who knows the Foreign Service would look at that career progression and think this person is on his way or her way to becoming a DCM in our Middle East Bureau or on his or her way to becoming an ambassador in the Middle East. But your next assignment was as DCM to India, which ultimately retracted your career towards Southeast Asia. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about why you took the job in India at that time? Yeah. So, as you say, I'd been working up for Mark Grossman then as his mm-hmm. executive assistant. And at that point, the previous little bit had mostly been in the NEA Bureau, the Near East Bureau. But frankly, I was getting a little bit disenchanted with our policy. And I was a little bit worried that we had lost a lot of the positive momentum in our relations. A lot of us gravitated to the NEA Bureau during the time when there was a peace process underway and President Clinton had met with Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn. And there was this tremendous sense of possibility, not Mm -hmm. just between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but there was a wider multilateral track with the Tunisians and many, many other countries. And we just thought, wow, what an opportunity to be part of history and to be part of something really, really important. And so a lot of very capable officers gravitated to NEA because we wanted to be a part of it. And conversely, when things started to go south, and frankly, I dated that a little bit to the first Netanyahu government, and I Mm -hmm. felt like peace process was not going to go very far. I think that turned out to be a good judgment. It was mostly about combating problems and fighting off criticisms of our policy from various quarters. So I thought I'd like to try to get into a relationship that where there was sort of a lot of upside. And there was no greater relationship than that than India. India had famously been one of the leaders of the non-aligned movement and a country that kind of delighted in poking America in the eye as often as possible. And (laughs) they'd exploded a nuclear weapon. And we had a lot of problems with them in the late 1990s. But after 9-11, they really saw that they had a lot of common interests with the United States and really wanted to solidify. And so that was just a great time to jump in and help to build that positive relationship. And we did. We did a lot of really great things, a civil nuclear deal and all kinds of stuff. So that's a good lesson for a lot of you younger officers that it's okay to change jobs. If you disagree with the policy of wherever you might be, don't resign. Just go and work in another part of the world where you feel more comfortable with what you're doing. And don't be afraid to branch out and go to a new place and learn. I mean, I did that throughout my career. And when I went to Turkey, when I went to India, And in each case, they hired me. And in fact, the ambassador even said it when he hired me in India. He said, Bob, I'm pretty confident there are probably 50 people in the State Department that could name all the rivers in India. I'm pretty sure you couldn't name more than two. I said, oh, yes, sir. That's right. Uh, (laughs) But he said, that's not what I want to hire you. I want to hire you because you know about how to get stuff done in Washington. And our agenda is really going to be about how do we persuade both all of the cabinet secretaries in Washington, but also members of Congress, that India has changed and that India really wants to work with us. And we need to get those visits out here. We need to change our policy. We need to change people's attitudes towards India. And I think you can really help with that. So even though I didn't really know that much about India, I certainly did know about how to get stuff done in Washington. So that was a good opportunity. So don't be afraid to take risks and go to a new place. And in a place like India, I was so blessed to have 
my senior staff were all themselves senior foreign service officers with tremendous experience. And my job was mostly to stay out of their way and <laughs> let them do their jobs. I'd like to quickly circle back to a point you made. You're being incredibly self-deprecating. I know you know these issues <laughs> backwards and forwards better than most people ever will. But I'd like to talk about having policy disagreements. Specifically, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the ongoing impeachment hearings. They featured a number of high-level State Department folks, Bill Taylor, Masha Ivanovich, yep. both of whom I think are contemporaries of yours, David Holmes, who's more from my generation, but with whom we both worked. We both consider those folks friends, and they're all exceptional Foreign Service officers. What's your impression of this whole Ukraine military assistance episode? Well, what I've told people is, first of all, I'm enormously proud of how Masha Yovanovitch and Bill Taylor and all of the other foreign servicers have conducted themselves. I think they've been just wonderful representatives of the foreign service and they've conveyed that how we as an organization are there to advance the interests of the United States and we're trying to do this in a dispassionate way and in a way that promotes the values of America. And obviously where this all went off the rails was when basically a parallel foreign policy was devised out of the White House. And I think the lesson for a lot of you younger officers is there will often come times – and this is something I used to tell people when I was even assistant secretary. When you're overseas, people will send you emails. Or they'll call you up and they'll say, hi, we'd like you to do this. And you got to sort of ask yourself a few questions. Whether you're in the State Department or overseas, I used to tell my officers, first, ask yourself, does this pass the Washington Post test? If a Washington Post reporter called you up or if a congressional staffer called you up and said, Ambassador Blake, why did you decide to do this? If you don't have a good answer to that, then it's probably not a very good idea to be doing this. The other thing I used to tell people was if you have some concerns about what somebody's asking, it's perfectly fine to go back and ask for a front channel instruction. And in fact, usually that's a good idea. And why is that important? Because a front channel cable you know is going to have to be cleared by all of the interested bureaus and people. And right. if it's important enough as it would have been in this case, it would also have to go over to the White House for clearance. And that way you get a front channel cable that you know has been properly vetted in the State Department and you know that this is the policy of the United States to do this and then you can faithfully go and execute that policy. And I think – Masha tried to do that. I mean she tried mm -hmm. to go back to the State Department and say, mm, Rudy Giuliani is doing some things that I don't agree with and are at variance with our policy and please help me understand what I should be doing here. And she didn't get the support obviously she needed. Quite the contrary. They pulled her out for doing the right things. And so that obviously was a mistake and that's why this proceeding is taking place now. But again, foreign service officers should never be afraid to ask for written instructions if they believe that something is wrong. As we're heading towards the end of our time together, I want to ask a couple last questions. Of course. You mentioned at the top of our interview that you left the foreign service in part for personal reasons with your family and that was somewhat bittersweet. Yeah. You certainly had and were having an amazing career. But a lot of folks go on to pursue other opportunities. Your dad did as well. 
there was an interesting story that I read. Your dad said he was invited to climb Everest on an expedition and that he asked Kissinger if he could have a bit of time to go and do this. And <laughs> Kissinger said no. And your dad said, well, I think I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> and he took leave and did this climb, which is amazing. And then yeah. he did come back to the department for a little bit, but he retired not too much after that. Right. Looking at your own career, what did your calculus look like as a senior foreign service officer, particularly an accomplished officer like yourself, when you're deciding to leave the service and move on to other opportunities? Well, first of all, I have to say I left the service with great regret. If it hadn't been for my children, I think I would have stayed on as long as possible. One of the things that I try to tell my foreign service colleagues is try to ensure as you're moving around that your kids, particularly when they get to high school, have the same four years in one place because moving them around in junior or sophomore year can be really tough on them and doesn't really give them a chance to become known and become leaders in their community and at their school. And I kind of took that lesson to heart myself. I retired in 2016 because my mm -hmm. kids were all going into high school and I didn't want to have them being moved in junior year or something. So I reluctantly retired from the State Department <laughs> for my kids. <laughs> and I still believe to this day that there's no job like the Foreign Service in terms of the impact you can have on people's lives and the simultaneous opportunity to serve your country. There's just nothing like it. And foreign service officers, whether they're political officers or economic officers or really anybody, almost every single day of your life, you can almost say that you've done something to help somebody else. And that's a pretty unbelievable thing to be able to say. And I think it gives us all a lot of satisfaction and keeps us all going. And as I say, even though a lot of people might not ever find out about it, you know in your own heart and your own mind that you've done something good for the world. And I just love that about the State Department. And I also just love the fact that, as I say, nobody micromanaged you. You know, you were kind of given your responsibilities and your specific objectives, and then it was up to you to figure out how to get stuff done. And you knew that you had good bosses who would help you if you needed it. And that was my leadership philosophy as well. Just I got wonderful people working for me. They've got this. They've got the con on whatever their area of responsibility is. But they should also know that if they need my help to go see a minister, if they need my help to write back to Washington to get something done, I'm glad to do it. And that was super empowering for my staff. And I think that was empowering for me growing up as well. And so once my kids are out of school and I'm not paying for three sets of private <laughs> tuitions, I'd go back into the State Department because yeah. it's just a wonderful thing. And I might even go back and be, you know, assistant secretary for OES, for Oceans, Environment, and Science, because it's kind of a personal passion of mine now. Sir, we would welcome you back with open <laughs> arms. We're ready anytime you are. <laughs> Any final thoughts, words of wisdom, words of support you'd like to deliver to our folks, particularly folks who are out in the field? Well, I'd like to just say, first of all, a lot of my former colleagues are contacting me now and kind of wringing their hands and saying, you know, Ambassador Blake, I'm really not sure if I want to stay in the State Department. And mm. this is really for me after all the things that have happened. Mm. And my clear message to every single one of them is, yes, you should stay. Your country needs you. What's going on now is frankly a little bit of an aberration. And I'm really confident that whatever Republican or Democratic administration comes after President Trump, they, they will probably go back to a more traditional foreign policy that values America's leadership role in the world, values a very strong State Department. 
And so in a way, their continued work at the State Department has never been more important and they can be assured of a continued bright future. And so we all go through these periods where sometimes you're not terribly happy with what the current administration is doing, but you find ways to cope with it. In my case, that crisis was when President Bush decided to invade Iraq without a UN Security Council resolution. I would say probably most of the State Department opposed that decision. But to Secretary Powell's credit, there was a very good process to hear from the State Department, hear what people's views were, and people had a chance to voice their objections. And the secretary presented those to the president. And the president decided to go in another direction. And so being a good military man, he said, yes, sir. And But at least we had the satisfaction of knowing that our views in detail had been presented to the White House. And people moved out of NEA. They just – they stopped mm-hmm. working in NEA and, and went to other places, in my case, to India. Mm-hmm. So there are various ways to manage these kinds of things if there isn't a disagreement. Of course, there's the dissent channel. There's lots of ways. So please don't resign. There are many other ways to continue to just play a hugely important role. And your country needs you now. And there's just going to be wonderful opportunities for all of you in the future. And just keep that in mind. Ambassador Blake, on behalf of all of our listeners and the department, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. You can find a list of Ambassador Blake's recent publications and media appearances on the McClarty and Associates website, where Ambassador Blake serves as the Senior Director for Southeast Asia. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation for supporting today's program, as well as the American Academy of Diplomacy. If you are interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov. And as Ambassador Blake mentioned, it's a fantastic career. You should all look into it. To find more about Ambassador Blake or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org or adst.org. Lastly, please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the Foreign Service can find us. Thank you very much.